and welcome to season, let's call it, 2.5 of SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And this is starting up the second half of our second season. Um, I've got a deadline that's uh, that's pretty much behind me. Karen, I understand that, that you're past the worst of your deadline crunch. I'm, I'm past the worst of my deadline. I can't quite say I'm past it as yet. But <laughs> Same here. <laughs> but at, at least, you know, sort of like I, I can actually identify the source of the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> exactly. Yes, for me as well. So, um, so today we are going to be talking about Gene Wolfe's Shadow of the Torturer. Uh, mm-hmm. This was one of my selections, and it goes along with my sort of theme of SF and fantasy that I've loved um, throughout the, the history of science fiction and fantasy. I know in the first season we'd focused on things that were a little newer. Um, this season I decided to go with some of the things that I knew that were a little more classic. Um, Shadow of the Torture is the first book in Gene Wolfe's famous quartet, The Book of the New Sun. And as such, when you're talking about just Shadow of the Torture by itself, it, it is necessarily an incomplete conversation. Yes, definitely. And, and I must say that um, I, I was not actually expecting it to end quite the way that it did. <laughs> And, but in a way, in a way, it's it's interesting to to have that effect for a book, because it. I would not say I would not say limits. It restricts you in a, in a fascinating way in terms of what you can actually address about it if you're going to critique it. Yeah. So um, there are definitely some things in this podcast where I will say, well, I, I don't have enough to address this in terms of a proper critique, and I will defer to Karen, who has actually read sequels and so on. But it it allows you to then look at it um, in almost more of a bare-bones kind of way because um, there are things that you might see being set up and so on but but in a way you have to just put aside some of the aspects of the story and the plot because you can't really assess it as a fragment and look very much more at the structure of the world the characterization some of the symbolism these are the things that sort of come more to the fore because those are the things that are drawing you in and possibly um drawing you in enough that you want to go on to the second book you want to see more what happens in the world so I, I did, I found myself both challenged by the, the abruptness <laughs> of, the, of the ending of the first one, but, but also appreciating it in a way because it forced me to look at the book in a different way than I might have ordinarily. Yeah, I mean, it really makes you, you focus. It's, it's like a magnifying glass looking at just the setup and none of the payoff. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> well put, yes. <laughs> Uh-huh, uh-huh. And and of course for for readers I'm sure most most people are familiar with uh, the book of the new sun um, it, it runs for four books although it's often packaged as two and two now um, and then it goes on um, actually after the initial quartet was done um, Wolf wrote several books to con- in the same universe I I've heard I think a dozen is the the number of volumes set in the the new sun universe okay or okay. Severian's universe. Um, mm-hmm. And and here I should admit to to where I'm coming from. I read the Book of the New Sun in a mad rush in about 2005. So right when right before I really became a reviewer. As such, I never wrote about it, and as such, I don't remember it that well. 
<laughs> and that's uh, actually why I became reviewers because I realized I was reading all this stuff and not necessarily getting as much out of it as I wanted to because it would be sort of in one ear and out the other. Mm-hmm. And um, and I remember loving a lot of things about Book of the New Sun, but I don't necessarily remember the details. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I'm feeling... I, I'm afraid I won't be quite as useful in terms of talking about how... I, I mean, we, we literally will be talking about setup without payoff. Right. No problem. But I am curious about one thing. You mentioned there, there are 12 books or so. Um, what I'm curious about is... Have there been uh, maybe short stories or contributions to anthologies or maybe even completely separate books which play in that universe that have not been written by the author? You know, I I am not aware of anybody else writing Book of the New Sun related fiction. I'm not sure that's something that Wolf would be open to. Uh Um, Now, of course... There's a whole subgenre of dying earth fiction, and and at that point we should mention that the day that we are recording this is the day that that the community has learned that Jack Vance passed away. Yes, and of course he he established the dying earth um, venue, at, which has had since had many homages and pastiches and admirers um, writing in similar veins. That that's that very 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 far future. Where the science fiction looks so much like fantasy, yes, and the and and the world is sort of running down. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's a very interesting setting. Another author that I've read quite a bit of short fiction from who does it very well is um, Matthew Hughes. Mm-hmm. I, I've admired quite a bit of his fiction set in a, a dying Earth kind of kind of universe. Yeah, and I have to say that um, it it is very intriguing to me that setup. Because we have talked several times in the past in other podcasts about this sort of artificial line between science fiction and fantasy. Mm-hmm. And what was really fascinating about all of the setup is that, and mind you, I went into this cold, okay? I had a, a vague idea in the background. I knew about the whole dying earth thing. But I think I was actually halfway through the book where I was like, oh, shoot, yes, this is a dying, a dying earth setup. Yeah, know? it doesn't jump because out at you. Um, it, it doesn't jump out at you. you. You do, in fact, have a feeling of, you know, is this, uh, first you think, is this an alien planet? Is this a fantasy land? And you're, and you're kind of vaguely cycling through all the options. And then when you finally realize where you are, you know, sort of far future, the sun is burning out kind of thing, it suddenly becomes um, an extremely fascinating world from the point of view that there are, there are so many things that can be done with that setup, and I can see why various authors have gone to it as, as a playground. You, you have all kinds of possibilities for culture, for language, and for science, and most of all for what I would describe as um, worldview. Um, when, okay, I'm, I'm going to pull out a little bit of my past. My first degree was a specialist in history of science and technology, and one of the things that you really get appreciation for is how um, civilizations' worldviews change. And sometimes I've read uh, quite good books where the, the fatal flaw has been that you can see this is a modern-day author with a modern-day uh, mindset trying to convince you that they are this particular viewpoint character 
in a world that's in the past or a world that's in the future. But not really doing it properly because they're so they're, they're holding on to the, the modern day viewpoint so strongly. Mm-hmm. And that's why for, for us right now, we can look back at science fiction of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and say it's dated because we can see the, 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 the mindset and the viewpoints of those decades shining through very strongly. Mm-hmm. And no doubt people will be doing the same for us. But what I appreciated so much about um, this, this setup was that I genuinely had a feeling of this is a viewpoint that has moved on from our, from our modern perspective. So although there were elements of science in there, most definitely, um, and there were elements of, um, I don't want to say fantasy, let's say a more, a more mystical um, kind of a way of seeing the world. Mm-hmm. It was neither quite medieval, nor was it what we would think of as futuristic and sort of almost Star Trek kind of kind of way. Yeah, definitely and, not that. And it, it was this very interesting thing that was completely its own, right down to even um, just just some of the way the culture was as well, but mostly how how people were viewing the Earth, how they were viewing the universe, how they were viewing their purpose in life those things were sufficiently different and alien while still recognizably having some kind of, of, of origins or, or sources that you could recognize from our modern era and also from the medieval era. And I, I, I really, I looked at that and I thought, no, that, that is something that I, I appreciate so much. That's, that's something that would make me come back again for, for more and more sequels to see if he could sustain that. Right, right. Now, should we um, should we give a brief plot summary before we we um, move on to, to more more? Oh yes, that's, that is how we usually do it, isn't it? <laughs> but then, then of course, it means that you have to do it because you're the one that chose the book. I, I chose the book, so I have to give the plot summary, and I think I'm going to go kind of bare bones on it. And basically, uh, so Severian is the narrator, and he mm-hmm. claims he tells us that he has a perfect memory. Yes, and. Um, and, you know, of course, that Gene Wolfe is, you know, famous for, for unreliable narrators, and, and Severian <laughs> is, is often trotted out as the example of an unreliable narrator. Um, but we learn that he is a member, he has been raised by the Guild of Torturers. And, yes. and that's pretty much exactly... Which I thought was a brilliant concept. <laughs> it's a brilliant concept, and it's exactly what you would think it is. It's a, it's a guild of people who are raised... You know, with the expectation that, that that's what you do. And um, and the political power, which is almost entirely off stage in this volume, uh, called the Autark, you know, sends political enemies to the Guild of Torturers to be done with. And, it's a kind um, of a Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, except I, I felt like the torturers themselves didn't have that kind of agenda. They were very much carrying out the, the will of the Autark. Well, that's what do you think the Spanish Inquisition was doing? <laughs> I don't know. I always got well, and this might be my ignorance of history. I always got the impression that the Inquisitors themselves were invested in that agenda in a way I don't feel like Severian is. Definitely not Severian, but in the sense that, um, well, I, sorry, I don't even mean to preempt, preempt the, the summary. But <laughs> there is a point where he does something he should not do, and the reaction of his colleagues is definitely the reaction of people who are. At, if they're not necessarily invested in uh, an overarching morality to what they're doing, they're certainly invested in a, in the structure 
and, ah. and, the, pro- and the process. Well, but I got the impression and, that that was them being invested in the pride of their the pride and traditions of their guild, independent uh-huh. of the political agenda of the autarch. But the thing is, the political agenda of the autarch is still what supplies them with the fodder by which they can practice okay, <laughs> the secrets true. of their guild. So, so, so to me, they're still tied. They're still tied, and and it's the bit that does make it different is that the author sends people or 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 whoever sends people to the torturers for widely different reasons. Right. Some of them seem quite trivial. Some of them seem heavily political. Some of them seem almost, um, you know, capricious or moral or what have you. So there there isn't there isn't in in, in the sense that. Um, Spanish Inquisition is very clearly about something very large and overarching. There's nothing like that going on, but in the sense that state is kind of feeding this guild, feeding um, this particular profession, um, their 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 guinea pigs or, right. or their their fodder, they they do have that level of investment. Right, right. Um, let's see. So at the very beginning of the novel, we get Severians sort of apparently chance encounter with a, a rebel figure, somebody who might be in rebellion against the autarch. And then we go get a bunch of flashback, um, you know, Severian's upbringing in the... And, and it's all mixed. It's very mixed. Um, it's very mixed and it's very dense. So you're reading stuff and you're like, I'm reading this and I'm not understanding it, but I appreciate this is not the kind of person who explains things in detail. Right, he's, right. He's almost like he's just saying, and this happened. And you're thinking, is this significant? How suspicious it is, but I think I just have to go along for the right. Yeah. yeah, and there's yeah. so much that you just, you're like, why am I being told this? Is it idle reminiscence, or is it because it's going to be important later? Yeah, yeah. And, and Severian has a way of tr- seeming to invest everything with a certain amount of meaning, even, even when you don't understand what that is. Yes, which is which is very interesting from the point of view of how minor characters are treated, right? Because there's some people who kind of come on stage, and and he has like a really beautiful, intense conversation with them, and then they just go off stage, and and you're like, okay, well, are you going to come back in book three? <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently, some of them come back in book three or two or ten. Wow, see that? I mean, <laughs> that's what you call the long black. <laughs> yes, Wolf plays a very long game with with New Sun. Uh-huh. Um, and again, I've only actually, I should also admit, uh, I've only read to book five. I read the book of the New Sun, all four, and I read the first volume of the next, so, you know, you know, I don't even know how you'd say chunk of series, mm-hmm. but I, I never did um, go beyond that. Mm-hmm. But, um, but but you see, this actually adds a feeling of realism to it because that's how life is. Sometimes some very random people come and say some you know stuff to you that it can be significant enough in your own life story, but not necessarily in an overarching um, story of some sort of level of politics or what have you. So I like the idea that you know some random person that we get this conversation with in book one then turns to again in book ten. Yeah, it's it's really cool, and and again, it gives you the feeling of a very densely interwoven universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to. I see, I'm distracting you again. Cool, cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've never gotten through a plot summary straight. Are you kidding? True, true, true. <laughs> okay, so so 
when he so most of the book is focused on oh gosh can i even say that anyway it seems to me that the core of this volume is focused on severian as he's a journeyman yes so he's basically an older apprentice he's not yet a master of the guild um he's still an apprentice he's still learning and in that process, you know, he's sent out of the of of their their sort of domain, their tower. Um, he he gets to see a little bit more of the of the world that he lives in, but not much. You know, sort of only in glimpses as he runs errands. Mm-hmm. And he meets one of the prisoners um, yeah. that's being kept by the by the guild, and this is the central relationship of the book, um, or of this volume. And and uh, it's a noble woman named Thecla, and he um, he's given permission. Actually, I mean, it's, it starts with a chance encounter, apparently, uh, and then he's given permission to sort of be her friend. Um, and and so we get a little Isn't bit. Isn't of... that sounds so innocuous? <laughs> yeah, I was trying to. Yeah, there's so much more going on there. <laughs> Yeah. So well, basically, so the prisoners the prisoners come to to the tower, and they don't know exactly when their torture will start, and they also don't know if they might be released. Like some of them think, "Oh, I'll be released tomorrow when everything's cleared up." Right. When uh, which which up apparently they, they realize it's a mistake, or my uncle will come and and drive, exactly. you know. yeah. And, and allegedly, in a, in a couple of rare instances, that can happen. Right. So it's sort of in the initial stages when I know she doesn't know yet when her torture will begin. They don't seem to have a calendar date on it either. Well, so and, the idea is that... And they're treating her with a lot of respect. They're bringing her yes. relatively good food. She asked for books, and Severian was allowed to go and get them for her. Yes. And that's actually, that's really how they, they met, isn't it? Because yeah, he brought it was books. the books. Mm-hmm. Oh, and she, oh. by then, of course, she... Go on, go on. Well, didn't you love the library? <laughs> well, yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was that was pretty that was pretty cool. Everything is really done in, in really marvelous marvelous but economical detail. And that's that the thing. That's the thing. Like part of me wants to, to describe it as baroque, and then I realize, well, but it's not overdone like that, is it? It's, it isn't. He, he but it, you. I feel like I could not skip. This was a book I couldn't skip. You, you can. I've often read. I've often read um, epic fantasy or or some science fiction where. You know, people going on and on and on. It's not worth exactly. doing very much. And you skip. You, you know, skip. you do it. <laughs> yes. But you, but this one you can't. You can't. You really can't. It's really good that way. Sorry, okay, go ahead. Other, go. Well, and the other nice thing is you don't want to, but I think we'll circle back <laughs> to that um, <laughs> a little later. Okay, so... So, so basically, one. she's fully Stockholm syndrome, and and he's he sort of brings the books and he's kind of kind to her, and she's like, look, you know, I want him to keep bringing stuff for me, you know, let him bring my food, let him, you know. So that's that's really how that's really how that that happens, and and they immediately anticipate that he's probably going to fall for her, yeah, because because he's grown up as an apprentice and a journeyman, he's really only had contact with the guild, and the guild is all men, right. So they they instantly recognize that this is a recipe for disaster so that so but they very practically pack him off to the colleague to a to a um to a to a to bordello a yeah to, a to, to, to get a little initiation and kind of work it out of his system <laughs> <laughs> and um and which i don't think actually worked but but it was a good idea i right, guess yeah you feel like for a normal for a normal apprentice that probably would have worked yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I just, I just had to say that. But you see, the little touches like that, I do think were really 
excellent in, because you, you have a scene like that and it may seem random, but it says so much about the character of the people that are, are training him and the structure of the world. Mm-hmm. It, it says it says huge amounts. So anyway, go ahead. Right. Oh, and we should also note that Thecla appears to have some relationship to the rebel character in the first scene um, uh-huh. through her sister. Yes, which is probably why she's there. Which, but she's not even quite sure why she's there, but she figures it's because her sister's run off with this rebel. Right. And she's some sort of bargaining chip. Right. So, um, okay, so after Severian gets to know her better and we get more, like, information about the world he lives in and, and how he was raised in the guild, he's finally uh, elevated to become a full member of the guild. So they, they describe that process as being masked. Because the actual torturers always go masked and the apprentices don't. Uh-huh. And that, you know, again, that's just fraught with symbolism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then the pretty much the first thing he does is betray <laughs> everything yes. about the guild that he's been taught for this woman. But he does it in such a marvelous way. Yes. Should we, should, yeah, okay, there's... Again, people, this was written 30 years ago, so, you know, spoiler freaking alert. Um, (laughs) So instead of freeing her in a romantic gesture, what he does is he smuggles her a knife. Once once she is taken in for torture... And And it's an ingenious torture. It is a creepy-ass torture. Creepy and ingenious. And, and, And again, I have to say, I am not a sadistic person, but uh, I appreciated that torture. Because so many times you do read um, various um, SF books that take the idea of torture, and it's and it's really just crude and sort of crude and barbaric, and and actually I can read stuff. Sometimes I read stuff like that, and it doesn't affect me because it's precisely too much. Mm-hmm. But you read something like this. And it's like, okay, Hitchcock, yeah. You know, and so you, creative. I don't think I've yes. ever read anything quite like it. Yes, exactly so. And um, I'll I'll tell you I'll tell you why it struck me in particular and, and to stop um, our listeners wondering, what the hell is this torture? You're torturing us. <laughs> um, if anybody has ever read uh, Ray Bradbury's short story Fever Dream. Oh where yeah. um yes, and that's one of my favorite stories, where basically um there's this, this little boy and he has a fever and when he when he wakes up he, he can't feel his hands and he start he starts to tell he's tra- trying to tell the doctor that what the fever has done is that somehow it has taken over his body so although to, to them it looks like he's the fever's broken he's recovering he's feeling bits of his body disappearing and he's trying to talk to the doctor and his hands are trying to strangle him and and eventually of course in the short story what happens is that this virus or whatever it was takes over his entire body and um and he goes out unhappily and infects more people <laughs> right um but but this torture was like that where they put her into what seemed almost like an electroshock kind of machine mm-hmm. but when she came out it was like her hands didn't belong to herself and her hands were, were picking at her she was she was she was basically became the instrument of her own torture yes so and, and she recognized that it was going to be a, a slow and painful death by her own hands. And then he was like, well, you know, I thought briefly about springing you out and, you know, doing this big gesture. And then I realized, you know, I would have had to kill my friends and my colleagues to do it. But, you know, here's, here's the knife. Here's that, the knife. 
that that I was going to use for this, this grand gesture, and maybe it will be useful to you. And um, yeah, and she does make use of it. She does make use of it, and and I love the uh, I don't want to say love, but the the image of he stood outside her door until the blood trickled out from under it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, wow, <clears throat> damn. And I, and and that that again contributes to the realism of the world. Well, and the other thing is the way both the Masters of the Torturer's Guild and Severian basically just very flat out tell her exactly what's happening and what's mm-hmm. going to happen. Oh my goodness, when they're leading her to the machine. Would you like a little, um, would would you you like a little, little tour of, the- <laughs> of our other torture devices? Because it might take your mind off what's going to happen to you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's kind of interesting because as I was reading the book, I thought to myself, this book, the main character seems almost devoid of humor. And because of that, you think to yourself, this is a very humorless book. But as I think back on it, I now realize the subtlety of it, because although the main character and, and the, the first-person narrator has like not a funny bone in his body, there's stuff happening around him that's just absolutely hilarious. <laughs> yeah, so, so <laughs> in, in a twist and dark kind of way often, but it is hilarious. Like these people saying, okay, you know, we're going we're gonna to kind of discuss these other torture machines to, to kindly take your mind off things before we actually have to strap you in the one that is going to cause you pain. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, lots of stuff like that. Go on, sorry. But again, there's, this, there's also this tension between the people you would expect to be deceptive, right? The, the torturers, you, you, you would always figure, oh, they're not going to tell you what they're going to do to you. They're very truthful. They tell Thecla is like, here's what we're doing to you. And Severian comes and says, here's what's going to happen. They're nice upstanding people and they're not they're not murderers, mind you, okay? Right. They're right. not they are very I mean, I mean we're not even talking about like say Terry Pratchett's um Guild of Assassins here, where where the it's it's sort of spun in a slightly humorous way. We're talking about people who really have made it their job to cause pain without either without um causing death and in some cases without even causing um permanent injury. They're they're that skilled. Right. And, and they take pride in what they do, and they do it completely within the bounds of the law. So right. they're not criminals. They're they're not they're not twisted. Um, the people who join the guild is basically what they kind of taken orphans. It seems like. And and only very very young orphans. They basically say, um, pre- uh, children who come with their parents who are not yet the height of a man's knee or something like. They're, they said Severian actually said there's a bar, and if mm-hmm. a kid can walk under it, he can be admitted. Or if right. a pregnant woman is brought for torture and delivers, they'll take that baby. Right, right. That's how young they have to be to be able to accept this as a normal lifestyle. Exactly. And, <laughs> and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's very fascinating and also says a lot about our own contemporary world because that's precisely how we deal with our tortures. Um, have people socialized in it from a very early stage to think of it as normal. Mm, mm-hmm. um, okay, so once once he smuggles in the knife and Thekla uses it, obviously he's broken every rule of the guild that's possible to break. And and here's one thing that I can't, that, you know, in the setup of it just seems hugely, hugely unlikely, is that the guild basically says, uh, they, they, he, he stands right there and tells, you know, tells the people, here's what I did, because he knows he can't hide it, and again, he doesn't want to um, kill anybody on his way out. Mm-hmm. And they immediately lock him up. And he figures, okay, well, you know, they'll kill me. Yeah. But instead, they, he gets hauled before the masters, and they say, 
So we can't kill you because to kill you, you know, we don't want to be murderers. And if we did it within the law, then we'd have to have a trial. And if we had a trial, it would be embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. And it would have been embarrassing, actually. That, that to me, was a perfect bureaucratic setup. This, seemed, this sounded unlikely to you. This sounded like every government department I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair, fair. So well, there's this balance between, well, we don't want a board of inquiry because that would uncover some of the, the, the um, you know, the, the problems <laughs> that we have. So here, you take, you take some pre-retirement leave and, and, and maybe we'll farm you off to another department. It was, it was to me, one of the most accurate depictions <laughs> of a bureaucracy I've ever seen. Excellent. Okay, cool. Um, so basically what they do is they say, there's this faraway town that's been asking for an executioner. Here's yes. a sword. You go and you be their executioner and you don't come back. And this sword is a damn cool sword, by the way. And the me. sword is a pretty amazing <laughs> sword. So its name is Terminus Est Yes. in Latin. It's always in italics. And, um, and, and the description of it. I mean, you expect it to be like... Again, you know, if this setting were at all magical, you'd expect it to be a magic sword, and it kind of is, but it's extremely it's scientific. scientific. <laughs> and basically, it's it's a, a sword that has a hollow channel with mercury in it, mm-hmm. and so and that means the center of gravity shifts. The center of gravity shifts. Basically, when the executioner has to stand there for a whole long time while people make speeches, holding the sword over his head the weight of the mercury is in the pommel, which makes it easier for him to just stand there for forever with it raised. But as soon as he starts to swing it down to onto the neck of his victim, uh, the mercury shifts all into the tip, which gives it this incredible angular momentum and allows it to make a clean cut pretty easily. Yeah. yeah. And it's such a... Br- just You're like, that I was, I was awesome. quite happy with that sword, I was, yeah. <laughs> really was. I, I thought that was some proper, ingenious, creative... Um, and again, to me, the sword itself is such a huge symbol in so many different ways. But for me, that sword will always be a symbol of the blending of science fiction and fantasy. Mm, right, right. It's, a fan, it's, a, it's filling the role in a fantasy, but in a completely scientific way. Yep, yep. It's even named... <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Um, okay, so at that point, then Severian, uh, you know, they give him some spare change, essentially, and send him off on his way. Um, mm-hmm. And and he has to just start walking and pretty much. And this knows. this is where for me things start to get really crazy. And then <laughs> things start to get just freaking weird. The entire last third of the book, where Severian is walking out of town. It's bizarre. Yeah, yeah. He meets, he meets some strange people. He meets <laughs> very strange people. Hilarity ensues. He meets uh, a traveling uh, theater troupe that's consisting yeah. of a guy, a doctor, and his giant, and yeah, he's recruiting yeah. and wants them to be part of the play, but then he needs to buy a cloak, and so he goes over, and then the people who own the cloak store... He did, he did kind of skip out on them a bit. Oh, he totally oh, well, did. He was yes, like, you people are crazy. I'm and, get, I'm and, the, and he wanted to buy a mantle because he was dressed up in his torturer's garb and everybody used to look at him and go, <gasps> Yeah, everybody was like, oh Torturer's garb is this like special kind of black. It's not ordinary black. It it's is Fulgen. a black that has a name of its own. <laughs> right, Fulgen. Blacker than and, uh, black. Yeah. And people were so like, he, wow, it really doesn't show dirt. 
<laughs> That's very flattering. You win. You win. <laughs> We're making this sound as if it's, this is a barrel of laughs, and we assure you it's not. But it's not. you do have to be able to see the layers, and it does have a humorous layer to it. So he goes to buy a mantle to put over his kind of torturous garb so people will not be like... Right, and then the, the, the owners of the store where he's trying to buy a mantle are completely trying to rip him off, but he instantly falls in love with the girl who's outside, and then somebody comes in and challenges him to a duel, and the duel can only be fought... I, 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 but you forgot the most important bit. The, 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 the brother and sister pair who run the shop, the brother is desperately trying to get him to, to sell him a sword. Mm-hmm. Because he recognizes that this is a sword of quality. And, um, and then, then everything else is the same unfolds. Go on. Right, yeah. And, and he's challenged to a duel, and the only, duel can only be fought with a certain kind of flower. And so they have to... The sister is like, okay, I'll, I'll take you to go get the flower. So they go to... they go to the botanical gardens, but then they challenge this other cart to a race and they end up crashing into a religious cult and stealing their artifact. And But he doesn't realize at the time. But yeah, she kind of pickpockets this religious artifact, which is a very important religious artifact because it is in the title of the, of sequel. the next book. Right? <laughs> you know, you're like, you know, series is like, oh, and it's called The Claw of the Conciliator. It's like, you might as well just put in dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. then they go to the botanical gardens, and they there are all these different niche, you know. And the botanical gardens are utterly. We're talking. I have never seen. It's, it's like it's like it's like a circus sideshow <laughs> more than a botanical gardens. I I was like, what am I reading? This is when it began to get very surreal. Oh, surreal. Yeah, surreal is the best way to describe it. And and while they're there, they pick up this other girl, and she seems to have kind of appeared out of nowhere, and she doesn't remember why she's there, but she's really into Severian. And um, no, no, hold it. Jupiter's going to tell him that they just picked her up. He dragged her out of deep water. Where the, this is some water where like these dead bodies are are kept preserved or something like that. So there's this there's this horrible feeling. And again, I don't know because remember, I haven't read the sequels, but there's this horrible feeling that he's basically kind of um, revived this this um, person who was maybe mostly dead. You know, part right, of right. You know, um, so so she has zero memory um, beyond like she knows her name. Which mm-hmm. is Dorcas. Dorcas, yeah. Um, but she doesn't really seem to know much else. But later on, there are hints that even if she doesn't know who she is, there's somebody out there who does because they try to slip her a note warning her about, um, you know, the the girl who, as as we said, has already pickpocketed this a religious artifact um, and seems to be trying to swindle um, Severian out of the sword. <clears throat> Right, and then okay. So after all that, then then they do go to the dueling grounds, and and Severian fights his assailant. But then he he wins, even though he gets impaled. He, he gets impaled by this poisonous but this poisonous flower. And by the way, the flower is poisonous, but it's also described as being maybe not just toxic, but but perhaps from some kind of alternate reality. Yeah, where the geometry of that reality is not conducive to our being you're reading and I have that feeling, and it makes your brain hurt yeah i have a feeling we may have skipped a bit a little earlier because sometimes you get these little scenes that seem almost separate but you're like i know this is going to happen this is going to be significantly her on and there's this little scene earlier uh, or maybe a little later where something like interdimensional travels being described yeah. 
Yeah. It doesn't have any bearing on the immediate plot. Somebody's just sort of almost rambling and talking about it, but but you, you kind of you look at it and you're like, okay, I know you're going to crop later on. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So there are all these... Not by, this is the point by which I was like, okay, we're going into science fiction. <laughs> this is the point by which if you started off thinking you were reading epic fantasy, you began to realize that you were, in fact, on the flip side of history. Well, and I, I do want to point out one thing. I don't think anyone would even start reading it or within a few pages would realize that they weren't necessarily reading epic fantasy, but that if it was a fantasy, it would be sword and sorcery. True. And it would be a low magic sword and sorcery yeah. universe. Yeah. Because yeah. they do mention a guild of witches and so on, although they don't really feature very strongly. Yeah, almost no one uses magic. It might be out there. And again, you have the guild of witches, but I don't know. It, it Something about it, and I could probably pin it down given enough time, um, was ineluctably of the parts of it that felt like fantasy, it felt like sword and sorcery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so. Maybe because there were no farm boys involved. Um, <laughs> oh, was that hey, my outside Severian, voice? Severian is almost a farm boy. Well, he's very close. Orphan. They actually do point out that he, he looks very much like nobility, and of course, you know, if you are oh, taken uh, from yeah. the... It, it's so much foreshadowing, yeah. but again, you're like, well, how much is Severian building up his own... Oh, and we should mention that every once in a while, Severian says, while I'm sitting here writing this in the castle of the Altark with soldiers outside. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you, you begin to understand that this is a, a, a retrospect that he's actually giving you, and that he's somewhere that's quite far removed from what he's describing. Right, that right. That he has, in fact, sort of taken over the entire world. And has somehow turned into a bit of a almost a messiah figure, I think, because he's 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 um because by then you have hints about the sun dying or whatever, and he's talking about the new sun by then. He's starting to talk about the new sun. So there's all there's definitely all this this thing. Well, what I couldn't quite figure out now that you mentioned that kind of the duality, the narrative there, is that there were times when I was reading um, Severian in his voice and thinking. Yes, this is the typical kind of half-grown boy, you know, not quite a man, almost a man, who doesn't really fully understand his, especially when he was, his, 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 his amazing capacity for falling in love with women within 24 hours. Oh my God. Um, yeah. I have never, I have not seen something like that outside of a Shakespearean play. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, when you, when, you read, when you read some of the ways he interacted with some people, it, it really felt more like a myth or like a stage play because yeah. of the suddenness with which he would, um, you know, either have these intense conversations or form these intense bonds or what have you. But so on the one hand, there is that kind of the, the, almost the immaturity that you expect, the immaturity, the uncertainty, even the obliviousness of a, of a, a very young man. But then, then he will suddenly say yes, and I am now whatever, whatever. And you're like, well, if he's much older and in a, in a position of huge authority, and this is a retrospect, um, retrospective. Where's the mature Severian voice? You know, mm-hmm. and there was there was nothing there was nothing balancing that. Sometimes when you actually do have a full retrospective, there's an element of oh well, you know, what a silly young man I was, kind of coming through. And there's there's none of that coming through. That was mm-hmm. the only thing that kind of kind of confused me a little bit in a way. And I didn't know if it was because maybe he came to his power while he was still very young. Maybe I, I didn't, it was one of those things that I decided to let go because I knew I needed the full story for it. Right, right. Although I really like the, the, the um, 
the comparison with stage play, because of course we come back to that as um, Severian and Dorcas are making their their way out after the duel, where Severian mm-hmm. has survived, um, uh, and they run back into the Doctor and the Giant in the, and get yeah. pulled into... The a stage play. A yeah. stage play. And it feels like Wolf is kind of hanging a lantern on it. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, and calling attention to the artificiality of story. And I, it it almost seems like they're putting on a version of Frankenstein. Well, do you know what I found very amazing? There is that bit, um, as, as you say, when they come back to the stage play and so on. And then there's this bit where... Which, by the way, of- talk about dream logic. In the sense of... Of being pulled into a play where you don't know your lines, but you have to go on anyway? <laughs> yes. That's a good point, yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, but, but yeah, there's, there's this bit where um, sort of older Severian narrator stops and ponders um, about style and tropes and story. Because he's actually talking about um, how he's been handling the, nar- the narrative thus far. Mm-hmm. And um, and really, I I kind of almost sunk into that a little bit because I said to myself I had already been observing quietly a bit in the back of my mind how he was playing with particular styles, so that you start off thinking okay it's this kind of story expect this kind of style and then something happens which is from another style. And and this this happens in a way that is is very deliberate. So as I said, even when you have something like um, you know, the, the the sudden the sudden falling in love, or when you have something like um, you know the the minor character who comes on and and is almost like you know, I would almost compare it to Hamlet. The Grave Digger in Hamlet, mm. that kind of thing, where you have this like huge and intense um, conversation with lots and lots of lines for what seems to be a minor character, but there's, there's a lot of significant stuff happening. Um, so, so you I, you just got this this feeling that there's elements of of stage tropes being blended with literary tropes. Yeah, and um, and I I did find that very fascinating. Again. It's something that I noticed but didn't want to delve into too deeply because I needed to see the full story yeah, to be sure that's is, what was being done. There's so much that you can't evaluate without knowing what the payoff is. Yeah, true, true. Yeah. Um, you know, This is all your fault. You set me one book. My, and, I have, what, 12 volumes to cover? Well, Thank no. You. It, it, you know, the, <laughs> the original book of The New Sun does tell a complete story in four volumes. Um, okay. And... <laughs> and the only thing I can, I, I really can't defend it because as I was reading it, and once I was getting to towards the end, I was like, "Oh God, what have I done?" You <laughs> can't read this, um, you know. But in my defense, all the positive things that we've been talking about—the the the shifts in the the subtle play of mm-hmm. um, of tone of voice of well, Severian's voice, of course, I think is very smooth. It's very calculated. I. I I think I even put on Twitter recently. I was like I'd forgotten how easy it is to sink into the prose of Severian's voice, mm-hmm. um, the world building, the, the the minor characters. Oh, the language! No, the I got a gush of the language. Of it. Bit. 
And and basically, you know, to me, that's worth it, even yeah. without knowing the answers to all the puzzles. Yes, yes. Um, I really, I loved how he dealt with language. Oh, yeah. By the way, because, okay. Uh -huh. One thing that jumped, jumped out at me, there are a few times when Latin is used. Yes. And Severian, to my mind, always translates it incorrectly. Yes. <laughs> which which is actually perfect. You know why? Why? Because it shows the kind of drift that you would expect from a society that is no longer as um when I say when I say that they're they're drifting from literate into oral. Mm. So the, the the yes their libraries, yes their books, but but people don't have a lot of books. There's well of course this was, you know, written a while back, but there's nothing like the, like the internet or anything like that. So there's nothing really for people to, to, to kind of look up and check what they're doing. So you get a drift, and there's probably even regional differences in how they would translate one thing or another. Right, right. But he never translates it completely incorrectly. He always seems to translate it with an additional nuance. So yeah. you also get the impression that this particular phrase developed a particular kind of meaning in a, a specific context or culture or region again, and that is what he's pulling out. It's a very subtle trick, but it it's is. glorious to see. It I, is. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it because that, that, to me, the language was the classic example of how you have a, a new, a, a different place, a different viewpoint, a different... Um, way of looking at the world, but you can trace things back to the origins and, and you can actually see, you know, they would have gone through this sort of stage. You're telling so much. You're telling so much. And mind you, Latin, we mentioned Latin, but there are words in there that are from many non-European. Many, many. And, and one of the amazing things is that there are so many words that you have to, they seem like neologisms. You have to derive their meaning from con context unless you're you know, much, much, your broad, you know, your, uh, your vocabulary's OED level. But then if you go look, those are real words. They're real words. And I words. did a lot of looking, let me tell you. Yeah, Gosh. me too. The first time I read this, the first time I read this, I actually had a college subscription to the OED, and I oh, actually went and looked up a bunch of this stuff. <laughs> and he's still using them in different ways, but they are real words that are related but like, and trust um, me, you will need, if you're going to read this, you need a big dictionary. A you big need a freaking dictionary. Because we're, we're talking about words that are very obscure in some cases. Yeah, they I mean, not exist, just like a but, little obscure, really yeah. obscure. <laughs> but, but again, it gives you, it gives a richness. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. In a way that just a pure neologism often doesn't. And I have not seen use of language like that since Tolkien. Exactly. Exactly. And it's always been Severian's language that, that just made me fall in love with these books, although not to the extent that, that I, I, I told you offline that, that there's a huge amount of fan scholarship about this series. Yeah. I'm, I'm not part of that community and, and I haven't, <laughs> you know, I can't even begin to speak to all the amazing clever things that Wolf has sown throughout the series. Um, but that use of language just made me fall in love with it. And the only problem that I've had is that mm -hmm. since then, I've read other books by Gene Wolfe in completely different series, like The Wizard Knight. Mm -hmm. And I can't stand them sometimes oh. <laughs> because they're not in Severian's voice. 
Oh dear. He tailors his narrative voice very specifically to mm-hmm. the the story being told. Uh-huh. Severian is one character, and he has that voice. In Wizard Knight, the narrator is a, uh, a gentleman named Abel. He has a completely different voice, and I don't like it as much. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Wait, so wait, hang on, hang on. Before hold, hold that thought, okay. hold it, hold it strongly. Okay. But we're so close to the end of the summary that we should probably just quickly say what happens after. Uh, uh, okay, so. so so they finish up their play, and they... But did we actually mention that Severian's first execution? Right, and then he actually does get hired. Basically, somebody kind of runs up to him and says, You, you look like an executioner. We've got someone who needs to be executed. <laughs> and and that that happens. No, 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 wait. Go back, go back. I'm talking about when he comes over to Jewel. He and, um, the duel. And he... And basically, oh. he's, he's still injured, right? And, and he's recovering. And then they kind of come to him and they say, well, you know, um, we do have this trial and um, we do need this person to be executed. And it's the same man who was dueling him. And that guy ends up it actually the owner of the shop. Right. He had concocted this elaborate plan to, you know, challenging him to a duel and so on, to be By able way, to kill him so he get his sword. An elaborate plan in a remarkably short amount of time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, so yeah, extremely low short speeds of time. So basically, all the weird stuff that was happening was generally done to try and, and get the sword from him. Right. And 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 the girl was the, the sister was also part of it. Was a big part of it. Yeah. But then what happens is that as he's visiting the, the brother in prison, and um, the the girl tries to she flings herself at him. She tries to pick his pocket. And that's when he discovers, he does discover a little later on, the reason why she did this is that she had slipped the claw of the conciliator into his pouch. Mm-hmm. Because at the time they had the crash, she was like, here, search me, you know. And of course they found nothing on her because she had already slipped into his pouch. Right. By the way, and again, you're like, if Severian is as much of a hayseed as he portrays himself, how did he manage to defend himself against an obviously level 10 pickpocket? <laughs> Oh, you're right. He's 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 so variable in his obliviousness. It's, yes. it's quite yeah. But but yeah. So 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 that happens, and then of course what happens is that um, they let the sister go. He ends up executing the brother, and then there's this idea that she's sort of at large and possibly looking to be revenged upon him. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how that unfolds, but she's out there, and he does catch a glimpse of her later on. Yeah, and um, he catches but, a glimpse through the claw. Which is a gem. Which, again, gets into surrealness. Yeah, there, there are a couple of other surreal things that happened that I can't even address. Yeah. Like, um, the, the vision they saw of the, of the, of the edifice um, rising up. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, but, you see, fortunately, things get a little, a little bizarre, and then it ends really suddenly. And then it just ends. Right. And it just ends. And literally, just ends sort of like, whoops, whoop, we're out of time. Um, see you next book. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Let me. Uh, oh yeah. Um, here I pause, having carried you, reader, from gate to gate, from the locked and fog-shrouded gate of our necropolis to this gate with its curling wisps of smoke. This gate, which is perhaps the largest in existence. By the way, he's talking about he he got to a gate to exit the city, and then a riot appeared to start in front of yes. him. 
And then so the riot, the riot's ongoing, and he's stopping the story. <laughs> Say yeah. bye bye now. <laughs> yeah, actually, before before he starts with the here, I pause. It was even his screams were lost. Was the last <laughs> word. And then, yeah. okay. Uh, the sheer well, audacity of that really kind of charmed me. To oh tell the yeah, truth. yeah. And then at the very last, the very last paragraph. Here I pause. If you wish to walk no further with me, reader, I cannot blame you. It is no easy road. <laughs> if there was ever yes. something that's just like, okay, now I want to read the second one. I mean, I, yeah. I've got way too many things to read and my, my schedule is packed and I was almost like, no, no, I can, I can totally squeeze in the second one. <laughs> and I've read yeah. them before. Sorry for that. So that's why I wanted you to do just, just finish that hawk because I knew we were so close to the end. But <laughs> You want to now go back to what you were saying because I think that's actually gonna then we can now talk about things now in general concerning the whole the right whole. the the narrative voice and um, uh, Severian's just so smooth, but and there's uh, craft. I don't think I've ever seen a book that that draws more attention to how a story is crafted. Mm-hmm. Um, but but does so in a way that says I know so well how a story is crafted that I'm going to turn everything that you think you know on its head. Right, and and one of my favorite examples of alienation or not alienation uh, that's maybe the wrong word, but defamiliarization. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the painting that Severian saw on his way into the library? A figure standing on a desolate landscape with a banner. I did not remember that. Continue. So he describes his painting. He says he, he specifically stopped to look at it, and, and it really caught his attention. So the first thing he says, he's been sent on this errand. And the first thing, he looks at this painting, and he says, The picture he was cleaning showed an armored figure standing in a desolate landscape. It had no weapon, but held a staff bearing a strange stiff banner. The visors of this the visor of this figure's helmet was entirely of gold without eye slits or ventilation. In its polished surface, the deathly desert could be seen in reflection and nothing more. Yeah. yeah. And then he said, This warrior of a dead world affected me deeply. Okay. Yes. Pause right there, and the image you have or I had in my head was very much of a fantasy like a Michael Whelan painting. Right. Bob Eggleston, maybe, right? A fantasy um painting yeah but then he he has a conversation with somebody who's been restoring some of this artwork basically what it comes he describes it further and you realize what you're looking at is a picture of neil of uh, buzz aldrin at the apollo moon landing are you serious (gasps) whoa okay going back to read that Okay, I missed that. Whoa. Yeah, no, and and for me, I think that might have been one of the moments when I just fell in love with these books, when mm-hmm. when he's able to just by how he's describing it move from something that I would consider, you know, even maybe a little banal mm-hmm. to a way of describing something I'm incredibly familiar with in such an alien way. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is what I mean when I speak about... Um, making sure that your viewpoint does not stay with the modern mind. Right, right. Like, and, and, and that image, now, at the time that I read this originally, I had not read any of the Dying Earth fiction, but that um, idea that somebody 
millennia from now would look back at the Apollo landing and see that iconic image and describe it in a way that I would describe fantasy. Right. Yep. That's <laughs> yes. amazing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And and yeah. that's just it feels like a throwaway scene. It is a throwaway scene only in the sense that he has other throwaway scenes that accomplish the same purpose of giving richness to the world. Exactly. Exactly. Which is why I said this is not a book to skim. Right, right. Because, because clearly, you know, I completely missed the significance of that moment because I was like, yeah, you know, because I probably started focusing on the library, right? Right, because <laughs> um, when you're getting to a library, that's, you know, what we all want to focus on, frankly. <laughs> and, and, and because because then I was still I was still thinking to myself, I'm, I'm in a sort of sorcery thing. Um, what I appreciate about this is that this is definitely the kind of book that you want to read again and again because you're looking for all those little clues that were in there before. And I can understand why you said there's so much fan scholarship about it. Exactly. Um, but, um, but yeah, there was like... But you know, the irony of it, unfortunately, is that I can see that this would be very much an acquired taste. What do you say? People who do not like that level of, um, well, you use the word alienation, but there's some, some readers do not want to be that lost mm, mm-hmm. when they enter into a new world. It I, I, actually, I actually completely admire the audacity yeah. of this thing where it drops you into the middle of the story. He's using language. He doesn't really bother to tell you what it is. You've got to infer it from the context or go and look it up in the, in the biggest dictionary you can find. Um, <laughs> You know, and he, even he then, says, he'll use it in a way that has a slightly different nuance than any of the exactly. ones suggested in that dictionary. <laughs> and so, you know, all this stuff is going on, and it's very rich, it's very dense, and and sometimes you feel like you're just grasping the edges of it. Mm-hmm. And and as you say, just sort of going along for the ride and hoping that things become clearer later on. Some readers are happy with that; others are not. Right. I think that what you have to be able to do is to you, you, you have to be not only audacious, but confident. You have to show that at least I know my world so well that you can come along with me and I'm driving and I will be okay. And um, funnily enough, even the way the story ended so abruptly, the feeling that you get from the whole book is that either this author knows exactly what he's doing and I am safe for this ride, or he has... No clue, and this is a huge con. <laughs> There's no in between. There really is no in between whatsoever, because because there is so much going on that I, either you are really purposely going over the top and it's meant to fizzle, or it's all been very intricately planned out, and you, and you kind of just want to go along to see which one it's going to be. Right, right. And well, I there are that... some people who, as you know, the same way Severian says at the end, you know, this is no easy road. There are some people who are going to be like, you know what? I can't trust any writer that much. You need to give me more grounding. I need to know where I am. Who is this person? What is the significance of this? What kind of book am I reading? You need right. to be able to tell me what kind of book I'm reading. And, and, um, and what was I said? I said, sometimes you felt as if you were reading a Marvel comic storyline written as an autobiography. <laughs> I was sometimes I was listening to the voice and I thought, okay, this feels mythic. And then I thought, but no, this seems almost Victorian. I felt like I was, um, you know, um, 
reading David Copperfield or maybe more like a Thomas Hardy book mm-hmm. where, where you have this sort of young man trying to make his way in the world kind of thing. Right, yeah. And, and it had that same kind of element of, you know, lots of minor characters and slice of life bits and people coming to and fro and bits that you never knew quite if they're going to be significantly heron or not. And, um, and it was like, wow, you know, what kind of book am I reading? We so, as readers, we so depend on being able to identify by various cues what kind of book it is so that we can, in a way, prepare ourselves to accept or not accept certain things. The boundaries, what was that called? Uh, the boundaries of the believable are mapped for us. Okay, yeah, yeah virtue of okay here is here is this particular structure here is this particular type of narration this is the kind of story it's being told so then you're fine with this one the boundaries of the believable are unmapped yeah yeah so your your read is kind of like what because that's when that's when when we started going to surrealism is in the more of the second half of the book i was really like oh my goodness what is going on here right and it's it's not it, it it's almost a break from the first two-thirds of the book yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if so, you if you thought that you had finally kind of gotten a grasp of where Severian was and what his society was from the first two thirds of the book, the second third of the book is going to be like, <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now we're really going to drop you in the deep end if you didn't think you were there before. Right. Um, yeah, and and I mean, I've always been the kind of reader that will go with the author for as mostly as long as it takes to figure out what the author's doing unless they do something to piss me off in the meantime. Like, I really yeah. try and start out with that idea of the author's <clears throat> telling me a story, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, and I will go along until, you know, until I get it kind of figured out. And mm. I'm not sure I've ever gotten it kind of figured out with Wolf. <laughs> like, ever. I have to admit, if I had been given this book um, when it was first published, uh-huh. didn't really know the author, didn't know if I could trust them to have a certain level of, of skill and craft, as you say. Uh, I would I would have been like somebody standing in front of an abstract painting for the first time and saying, you know, has somebody just spilt some cans of paint? Is that <laughs> is that all this is? Is somebody just been flinging their brush at the canvas and trying to convince me that this is this is actually significant. It, it would have felt like that. And I probably would have been like, you know, no, I'm not in the pick of the sequel. Or or I would have said something like, I will wait till all the books are out. Although I admit that my attitude of waiting for all the books are out is, is far more to do with deep cynicism that has been created by such series as Wheel of Time and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Um, I... I yeah I um I'm, I'm I'm confessing this now on air. I don't do sequels very well at all right now. I really <laughs> the kind of thing of oh this is an interesting start. I will put it down for half a decade and wait until the whole story is done. <laughs> I read it all at once. And 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 I mean there there are two ways to look at that. Yes, on the one hand, it is because we have had disappointments of people starting off strong, and then losing the plot literally mm-hmm. things unravel things that should have um ended strongly as as they began just they were like okay i i don't know what to do i'm branching off too many subplots oh well i thought it should go this way but no, i'm not so sure and, th- and then it's all a mess at the end but what i've also seen happen i think i saw this especially with um 
the Harry Potter series is that people, especially if you have a book that gets a lot of fan response or fan scholarship and people delving into the theories and the significance and what's going to happen next, if you leave it too long, people are going to guess your story for you before you've written it. <laughs> Or, or guess certain things, or they will take it off in particular directions and will, will backfill all sorts of significance that you never intended. So then when you continue on your marrow, they'll be like, that's not right. I could have written that better than you did. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then it just all turns horrible. So sometimes I do feel as if, you know, you need to actually do like Tolkien, go away and write a really, really, really massive tome and then just flick it and publish it and say, right, chop this up as you see fit. But, <laughs> But, you know, as of now, I, I no longer have anything to do with it. <laughs> well, I do. Uh, my understanding is that the Book of the New Sun, the first four volumes, were conceived as a single story. But when you say we're conceived as, there are people who say we're conceived as, which means, oh, I have an outline. But there are outlines and there are outlines. Yeah, yeah. No. And then, and then there's some who are like, okay, I have like a really thick draft which is almost like the full books written. So, so I always have to question which one is it. Right. My, my very vague understanding from conversations with people like David Hartwell and, and, and uh, Gary Wolf are, are that Gene basically delivered the draft and then the editors at Tor were like, okay, so here's how we're going to split it up. Okay. And I respect that. I respect that hugely because that means you can actually trust them because you know that the story has been accomplished, has been crafted and done up um, already. It's not, there's no winging it involved later on. Right, right. <laughs> now, of course, how that relates to everything else that comes after Book of the New Sun, that I can't speak to. Fair enough, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you see, it does make me wonder if a book like that could have been published now. And I know yeah. that's a bit of a cliched question, but the reason why I ask it is that First of all, do we, do we have a situation now where, where somebody will sit down and will write basically a equivalent of four books before they then submit it to a publisher? Do we have a situation even where somebody might submit a book, which they really only mean to be like just one or two books, and then have a publisher say, well, you know, this is lovely, but really we want a three book or four book deal. You can, I'm sure you can make this a little longer. Don't you have some more story to tell? And you're like, ah, it's a paycheck. <laughs> you, you know, and, and, then, and then you end up, goodness, you end up like Dune, don't you? Dune was exactly where I was <laughs> going with that as soon as you said that. Have you heard the story? I've heard it, I've heard it told at Con, so it, it, it's relatively public. But um, the Dune, the original Dune novel had been conceived as one novel. And, and Frank Herbert had been going around saying, yeah, yeah, it's just a standalone. And then a few years later, he came out with the next one. I think we got Emperor of Dune or whatever the... No, the... Dune Messiah. Yeah. Which was a very slender tome. Dune Messiah. And somebody came up to it in con and said, Frank, well, I thought this was going to be a standalone. What, what made you, you know, decide to write a, you know, decide to make it into a series? And Frank Herbert leaned over to the guy and said, one million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy's like, you rock. <laughs> I hope that we're not um, dismaying anyone with this revelation of the mercenary side of writers, but we all gotta eat, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously, I, I would, 
I don't blame him. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although I did see- not find either Dune Messiah or Goddard of Dune particularly, you know, engaging. I did, I did, I did enjoy and appreciate Dune Messiah. Oh, okay. Uh, and there were there were a couple of the other ones that I was I was hanging in there, but I have to admit that by Chapter House I was pretty much ready to move on to <laughs> <laughs> because um, because yeah, there's it's 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 kind of well, I'm sorry, we are slightly going off the beaten track, but why why I appreciate we can't Terry be Pratt- rambling because that's the Cood Street thing. <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're not rambling. So we're definitely not, not rambling. Whatever we're doing, it's not what they do. No, no. But um, the reason why I appreciate Discworld is that Discworld takes the concept of we have a universe and we will tell um, various different arcs within that universe. So you have their, their stories about death, their stories about the guards, their stories about the witches. Um, it, in a sense, you also get the Tiffany Aching stories as well. You know, mm-hmm. that's a, that's also part of it, and it feels it feels fresh and it feels pressure free because ultimately they're all standalones, and you can dip in and dip back out. And sometimes if you dip into one that's a little later on, you realize, oh shoot, you know their lives have been moving on and stuff has happened. When did Vimes get married or something like that? But it's not so traumatic as you know. Right, there's a riot at the gates, and I'll bid you farewell now. <laughs> so I, I very much appreciate how Discworld works, and I can see that. Um, and, and marketing-wise, of course, it also works very well. Nowadays, um, as I said, you don't have necessarily people coming forward with automatic four-book drafts. You do have publishers wanting to have the possibility of a franchise, mm-hmm. you know, give us a Discworld, give us a, a Westeros, give us, give us something that we can have the readers coming back and clamoring for more. And, you know, I think if you're, if you're lucky or if you're skilled, you can do it like Crash It Does It and, and do it in a way that's not going to, going to you know, cause everybody a lot of stress. <laughs> but no, I, but, I think we've already, I mean, even today you hear about, you know, authors who uh, who come in with something that they think is a single story and they hear, okay, we're going to split this up and do a duology or a trilogy. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that still happens. Uh, Blackout. Blackout and All Clear by Connie Willis. That's the, the most recent um, okay. notorious Fair. example. Yes, that's a very good point. You know, so. she delivered that as a single a single volume and, and then was asked to... to, um, to well, that, that was do. just a mere matter of paper. Do you know who I'm surprised <laughs> that did not happen to? Who? Robin Hobb. Robin Hobb, really? When I read um, the um, Farce Farcier, is it? Uh-huh. The first book, I actually read it as an e-book. And then I saw the published novel. I'm like, I read that! Because <laughs> <laughs> we're talking doorstopper. You know, right, we're talking right. seriously thick doorstopper. And, um, but, you know, here again, let me be honest, there was some skimmage going on there. <laughs> uh, and I think, I think, no, I speak under correction. I don't think it was the first volume that I saw that was really huge. I think maybe it might have been the second or the third. But it was one of them that I looked at that because you're, when you read something in electronic format, you're not really aware of how many pages you're plugging. Oh, oh, speak for yourself. I'm a reviewer. <laughs> well, 
Sorry, yes. My iPad is full of e-arcs and I am constantly tapping down to go, okay, how much longer? Okay, I think I can do this in a couple days. Whew. Okay. Well, speaking, speaking of my days as a leisure reader, which I fear are now over, um, <laughs> when, when, you, when you're just reading for leisure and you do have an e-book, sometimes you're just like, well, you know, you just keep yeah, going. Yeah. Going, you're immersed in the world, you're happy, and then it's like, oh, okay, it ended. And then, and then you look at the publisher, and you're like, okay, that was what four inches worth of book I read. <laughs> but I have to admit, circling back to uh, Shadow of the Torture, that's one of the reasons that I did offer it as a as a book for this podcast was it is slender on its own. Yeah. Compared to especially epic fantasies today. And I know how uh, how you and I have a tendency to get caught up in plot summaries and <laughs> entire hour and a half on those. Um, Do you know what I would argue though? I have read, and I'm not naming any names, but I have read um, some epic fantasy thickness books, even if not necessarily genre, where I could I could still have given a very brief summary because a whole lot of nothing happened. <laughs> Yes, that's very true. <laughs> oh man, and I don't, I don't really want a whole lot of nothing at my age. I appreciate a book like Shadow of Torture Process because there's so much packed in there, and well, I can go back and read and get more out of it. Exactly, and that's the thing. I mean, I, I've the one thing I'm a little worried about is that we've been characterizing the book as dense, and if anybody who hasn't read it yet has followed us this far, for one, my hat is off to you. Um, <laughs> but but for two. Dense isn't. It doesn't quite have the right connotation for me. There's a dense lot is that, a compliment in our mouths. Sorry, say that again. Dense is a compliment in our mouths. Exactly, exactly. It's it's not dense in that it is hard to wade through. It's dense in that um, that there's so much there, but it's easy to read it through. It's the sentences carry you smoothly from one to the other. Severian, as an unreliable narrator, is nothing if not essentially a smooth talker. Think of it as what, that really, really, really rich dessert that you have to take in tiny, tiny, tiny bites. Right. But it's still right. really good. Right, exactly. Yeah. You want to finish the whole cheesecake. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not going to do it, you know, in, in spoon, you know, massive big old spoonfuls at a time. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's so much. There's so much there. I'm I'm glad that you were um, that you you found it engaging, even even though it is only a quarter of a story. Well, as I said, I One really. Of these days, I'll start thinking before I tell you to re- <laughs> I, uh, ask you to read things. <laughs> no, no, because if you had thought and if you had thought not to let me read this, I I would have been poorer for it. I, because I've been, I've just come out of, you know, I, I don't talk about my own writing on this podcast, but my deadline basically had to do with my um, coming up with the manuscript um, for a sequel. And when you are immersed in writing, the one thing you tend to do a lot about is thinking about structures and so on. Um, no, let me, let me be clear on that. I think the more that you write, the more books that you write, because every book is different, the more you start asking yourself, how did I do this, or how do we do that, and so on and so forth. So coming out of that, and not even fully out of it, into something with that level of complexity, don't laugh at me, but there were things I was reading where I was like, oh, good, phew, I did that. I was afraid I couldn't get away with that. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, um, not, no, I'm not saying don't look for any parallels. These sometimes there are things that are gonna be very trivial. There are things sometimes I think about doing that I don't actually put on paper. Uh -huh. But at least, at least if I was thinking, should I do this? Oh no, no, no. readers aren't like that. My editor's gonna tell me not to do that. And he, the things that he did, like the way he didn't do a lot of explaining. I love not to explain. My editors hate it. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And I get where they're coming from, and there's a tension. We try to meet in the middle where I'm like, and, and trust me, I know for a fact that no matter what you do, there are going to be bits of your book, the same bit in the book. You will have some readers saying, yeah, I read this, I didn't get it. And then other readers are going to come and say, oh, that was so obvious. Did you really have to hit us over the head with that? You know, you got to trust the reader more. Come on. And I'm like, no. You, you're, you're depending on who reads it. It's always going to be taken differently anyway. So you, you know, you have to, to stand your ground a bit and say, look, some people are always going to not get it, especially people who are not very much into genre complexity like that. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, just let me play with this for a while. Let me play with this for a while and see if I can get away with it. Well, like the scene we were just talking about with the Apollo painting. To me, that yes. that jumped out. Uh -huh, and, uh -huh. and, and for you, Did you, you work at NASA. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And for me, I work at NASA. I see this kind of thing like every day. Um, I, I am the reader for whom that should like jump off the page and go, ta-da! You know, and yeah. other people, they might have to, you know, maybe they'll pick that up on the second reading. In which mm -hmm. case they'll go, oh, wow, this is, you know, this has got more here than I thought it did. Yeah, yeah. But but you see, um, I like I like that a lot because... I think I think the way that you can best um, get away with a lot of things is to make your book as rich as possible. That even if you're missing some things, you're getting others, and you're getting satisfaction from those others. Right, right. So for for all the people who you know miss that you know it's it's the the Apollo painting, there are others who are going to appreciate the language, mm -hmm. or who are going to be caught up in the the stage mentions. You know, I can see somebody who is a stage actor really appreciating some of the aspects of this story. Absolutely. I can see, I can see linguists um, getting, you know, amateur linguists getting quite caught up in it. I can see that, that to me is, is the mark of a good, well, this is, we always talked about how um, literature supports um, many different readings. Yeah. But I think that good genre, if you're really building a proper world, People from all walks of life should be able to come in there and see a little bit of something that they know and they recognize and they're happy to see. Yeah. That to me is a mark of a well-built world. That makes sense. Huh. Okay, yeah. so with that, I think we should probably draw a curtain over Shadow of the Torturer for now. Yes. Um, and the consensus is... Go forth and read it if you have not done so. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, um, for for those listening who have not read it uh, before, um, usually you will find Shadow of the Torturer as a double billing with its immediate sequel, Claw the Concili Conciliator. It is usually so you will packaged... not be left with the riot at the gates. <laughs> right, right. So you will be able to just read smoothly on, um, and it is usually packaged in a volume called The Shadow and the Claw. Or I also believe there are omnibus, omnibus volumes out there that have all four books of the New Sun in one volume. Um, I think those are a little harder to find. Mm -hmm. But uh, certainly, usually, in at least in uh, in the U.S., you can find Shadow and the Claw and the second volume when it's packaged as two and two in your in your fairly average big box bookstore. Mm -hmm. Huh. 
but I'm really glad that you enjoyed it and because um, <laughs> yeah, I'm always a little worried with stuff like that. It's like, what if I, what if I'm completely off the, off the rails with that one? <laughs> nah, nah, you're good. You're good. Okay. So for, for those who are looking ahead to the next podcast, we are probably going to be discussing Napier's Bones by Daryl Murphy. If anybody Not wants. Math Fi, yes. This is one of Karen's choices. <laughs> uh-huh. Because that's that's what I said when we were talking about the theme, the second part that I'm bringing to the second season, second part, is all of my choices are Math Fi. And as, as Karen and I have been reading throughout the year, we've been picking up more and more things. We're like, oh, yes. ooh, and this is like that, and that is like that. <laughs> so we're, we're going to be adding on a couple more things near the end, <laughs> more math, right? But, you know, it's all good. It's all good. I'm sure by now you can trust us to bring you some, some excellent offerings, good authors, some, some new people and some old people. So you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll, be, you'll be happy with it, I think. And uh, Napier's Bones is one of the newer ones. I think it's a 2012 release. And at least from my point of view, I'm, I'm especially happy I could get it as an ebook. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So hopefully yep. everyone will tune in in a couple weeks and uh, join us again when we discuss Napier's Bones. Uh, so thank you very much for sticking with us, and we'll catch you in a couple weeks. See you then.